the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Back to Fighter World, another one of our podcasts, Sergeant Paul Galloway. Now, Paul joined the Air Force in 1996 after working in the horse, cattle and transport industries and also a copper refinery. Paul became a qualified aircraft life support fitter. He then worked on C-130 Hercules before moving on to the Boeing 707. Paul had a very interesting outcome when he volunteered for a search and rescue mission to try and find survivors from a sailing boat off the north of Australia. Says he enjoyed working on the B-707 with 33 Squadron because he visited every capital city in Australia as well as a trip to Japan. 2001 saw him working on the the J-model Hercules. He joined the Combat Survival Training School in January 2006. He became the Life Support Section Head for Hawk, Hornet and Super Hornet aircraft. Paul became involved with the F-35. It was definitely a new way of doing business. He says that at 53 years of age, he needs to think about life after the Air Force. He sometimes wishes he joined earlier. Paul, welcome. Uh, thank you very much, Gareth. And don't retire yet. <laughs> Not looking at doing it any time soon. You, you joined at the age of 28. Before you joined, those other jobs that I mentioned in the introduction, yep. what got you involved there? Uh, we had a bit of farming in the, the family history and uh, going through school, we'd often head west and, and assist uh, family friends with, with mustering cattle and, and that sort of stuff. We had horses and, and ponies since I was a kid, so I competed at a, a state level in uh, show jumping, eventing and, and uh, other things. And uh, I went to agricultural college for, for year 11 and 12. So it was a natural progression for me. I ended up on Strathmore Station up in the Gulf of Carpentaria, right. which was biggest cattle station in, in uh, Queensland at the time yeah and uh, yeah after that I um, did a lot of seasonal work with you mentioned with transport so I was working in the sugar industry carting sugar cane mm. and driving big big those big vehicles or dri- driving semi trailers yeah. yeah that was great and I enjoyed the work but it was seasonal um, I was recently married so I was looking for something that was a career uh, something that I'd really enjoy doing and and could see myself doing for a while yeah, I went into the recruiting office trying to join as a dog handler. Got told I was too short. Well, you mean a real dog handler, a dog dog handler. A dog dog handler in the in the Air Force, yeah. What's the height got to do with being a dog handler? Absolutely nothing, but I do know at the time they were looking for life support fitters, so I got ah. steered down that path. <laughs> <laughs> right. What is a life support fitter? So we take care of... Uh, Pretty much anything that sustains life in an emergency. Our motto is when, when all else fails. So we take care of parachutes, we take care of all the inflatables, so life rafts, life jackets. Uh, we look after everything the pilot wears, so their flying helmets. We'll take care of their uh, anti, anti-G uh, suits mm-hmm. on the fast jets. Mm-hmm. So pretty much anything that um, sustains life when, when everything else fails um, it's, uh, I guess, our duty to get them to the ground safely and okay. keep them alive once they're there. So if you've been focusing on the C-130s and also the 707s, 
is does that mean that your concentration is fitting out the right device for that particular aircraft and not something else? Most certainly. Um, and the big difference is when you move from the bigger aircraft to the fighters. But yet, so the Hercules aircraft will have uh, four life rafts installed in the wings. The 707 had the life rafts installed in overhead lockers uh, on top of the uh, main aisle mm. as you walk into the aircraft, as well as the, um, the inflatable sleds. Uh, that you slide the slide, sorry, that you slide down in an emergency to get out of an aircraft, and of course all of the um, the ones you'll see on your normal commercial jets that are sitting under your seat, your your life jackets. So when I get on my domestic flight to fly back to where I've come from, I should actually listen when they say follow these instructions rather than just phase out. <laughs> always, always a good idea. And of course, in the uh, at 33 Squadron, we had the, the flight stewards in the aircraft, so, and I did learn quite a bit of respect from them, so we definitely listened to, the, to them when they're talking on the commercial flights yeah. as well. I believe there was one moment in a search and rescue where you had an engine fire. What was that all about? Yeah, it was on one of the old, uh, I think it was an H model at the time, so... A three-master had gone down in a cyclone uh, travelling from Auckland to Osaka and uh, we got tasked, and I was brand new AC at uh, 486 Squadron working on the Hercs. So we got tasked for that one. We were meant to, I was pretty excited because we were meant to overnight in Townsville, which was home for me. Mm. And the uh, flight engineer came down to me as we were on on, um, area and said, oh, can you just keep an eye on number three? I've got an oil gauge problem. So, of course, I was looking out the window and keeping an eye on engine three and I was looking forward and having a cup of tea and uh, then I looked back and the guys are looking out of the side door, the parador, and they, they looked a lot brighter in the face and it was because the engine had caught fire. So it wasn't looking too good because the, the pilot had tried doing a couple of steep dives to blow it out. Of course, they turned off uh, fuel and, and oil to that, air, to that mm. engine and um, the fire ended up going out but it was when we we had to land in Honiara in the Solomon Islands that was the closest place and he said he was even thinking about getting down low so they could get a bit of sea spray to perhaps put put the the fire fire out now we'd been watching waves breaking over the top of um, large ships so I don't like our chances (laughs) had we uh, had to ditch in the water there so no search and rescue Obviously, yeah. you were actually going out to search and rescue for someone. Yeah. What happened? How did they call back up? Or so, so we landed in Honiara, and um, they then they call it a rescue, where they send an, another aircraft with a spare engine. Uh, so another Hercules came to the Solomons, mm. landed there, and they um, yeah they came with the, a, a, another engine to fit it, which is a big job, obviously, taking an old uh, uh, an unserviceable engine off and putting a serviceable one on. I can so, imagine. Yeah, and unfortunately um, there was nobody found from the ship, uh, so disappeared, disappeared and never been seen Never been since, seen since. Is- so as a life support fitter with that, that aircraft that you were on, yes. were you on it to make sure all of the equipment was used properly or in place or what was your role on that particular mission? No, I was just a a body on the aircraft to, um, so what happens when you go on a search and rescue is they start a search pattern where they go uh, up, turn, come back and and work in a grid pattern. So, and they need people that are, um, um, I guess, alert and they put you on a seat and they would slide that seat back where you're looking straight out the door, out the side and you are strapped in. 
So you'll be on, on station there for a, a long time and they need people to do shifts right. um, looking out the, the door okay. or, or having the, the rear door down where you can look out the door there as well. So, so I, I'm still interested as the fitter, the yes. C, C-130 or, or the Boeing 707 or whatever, what's the process in determining what goes on and how it goes on? Is there a designer before you or are you that person? What happens? So, no, it's, it's all decided well before we get assigned to um, an aircraft type. And the what goes on and how many goes on depends on the configuration of the aircraft at the time. So with the 707, um, we might have 16 seats down the back and all the rest is configured for pallets. So just for cargo. Mm. And then the next uh, task may be to fill it with seats so that it is uh, purely a passenger aircraft. So um, with the old 707, there was a lot of configuration changes happening with not just life support gear, but with uh, seats and pallets and rollers and those types of things. So, And when they're doing air-to-air refuelling, they, they may have it set up just with rollers for pallets, but um, they've got seats in there for sitting on to um, look out the window for the air-to-air refuelling. Mm. Talking to a, a previous person about the C-130, talking about when there's a full load going somewhere and then there's no load coming back, when that load disappears, the configuration of the aircraft and how you fly the aircraft changes profoundly. Your equipment that goes into the aircraft, what do you have to take into consideration? Uh, purely the number of people that are on the aircraft at the time for us. So the, the number of life rafts on a, a C-130 won't change because they're fitted into the wing. Uh, so they'll stay there until their service life expires and then we will go and pop the doors, uh, lift them out and then place new ones in there, new serviceable. Every C-130 that took off, yep. before it takes off, you're involved. Correct. But those those life rafts stay fitted. So, um, yeah, uh, we'll... Um, you know, maybe installing the red seats in the cargo area and those types of things. And uh, we then ser- it's the servicing life mainly for the um, life preserver vests and the uh, flying equipment for the pilots, mm. for the air crew. I keep on making the point, someone listening to these podcasts, that when the normal public thinks of aircraft, they think of a pilot. When they think of Navy, they think of a ship. Yes, definitely. The diversity of jobs within the Air Force is incredible. You can join the Air Force and virtually become anything. It's not pilot. That's just one of many, many jobs. How do you see that diversity within the force that you're part of? So I was lucky too to spend three years in uh, Defence Force recruiting. I went there thinking I knew quite a bit about defence jobs, uh, having worked in tri-service environments. I thought I knew a bit about Army, a little bit about Navy, and, and I thought I knew a lot about Air Force. And I learnt so much about the, diverse, the, the diversity of the roles, um, who can do the roles, and obviously the fact that when you join, you don't have to know anything about the role that you're joining for, as in you don't have to be trained. Mm. You, you should have an idea of what it is you're going to do, but you don't have to have experience. Um, And I mean, for me, uh, especially uh, where I'm working now and seeing uh, the new roles that have come into the Defence Force, um, just... Such as? some of them I, I won't talk about on this because... Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, yeah, sure. Now, just, the ones you can talk about, please. Yeah, well, the, um, I guess the, the new aircraft, it's, it's a big flying computer. 
and um, you know it's a computer that you can't see on radar so the the diversity of the roles that are needed just to maintain um, those capabilities is um, it's astounding and mm. um, it's it's certainly opened my eyes and you know from working on the old E and H model Herx and the 70 through to working mm. on on this fantastic piece of equipment um, yeah it's really opened my eyes to um, to the fact that that aviation is changing so much exactly and it's in our it's 100 years of history that is, is certainly yeah exactly yeah. Um, you mentioned recruiting all right you're in recruiting office I've come in and I want to, I say to you I want to join the Air Force yep what are you going to say to me when we're working in recruiting you know we're not recruit instructors so we we make sure that we make everyone welcome and a lot of people come in there with an idea of what it is they want to do and what job it is that they're interested in we get others that just want to join and they want to they said I just want to join now I want a job so you know it it may depend on on the person in front of me but um, you know I may be able to tell them the jobs that we're hiring quickly and they can tell me the ones that they're waiting to to join but I'm always quick to tell everyone that, yep, you 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 know, to be a pilot in defence, for example, you don't have to already fly aircraft. Um, it's but you know, of course, you need to have an interest, uh, and it's the same with being a life support fitter or an aircraft technician or um, a dog handler mm. or any any of the other jobs that we have in defence. Provided mm. you you have an interest and you're a, a good worker and and you're happy to. Um, you know, put your head down and have a crack. The the defence force will train you with all the skills that you need. I'm just interested to know the value of the person who comes in and wants to join simply because I want a job. You know what? Some of them are fantastic. Um, some of them, yep, you you. Uh, some of them are there because their parents would like them to be there. And uh, you know, we've got a pretty rigorous recruiting process now with psychologists and and uh, doctors and nurses as well as uh, the military staff and the contractors mm. that work there. You know, some of them they they want a job, and, and you know that they, you know they they're good people and uh, they may come from a community where that's been struck by drought or maybe they haven't had the chances that some others have had. So I tried tried to treat everyone. Um, uh, with a positive spin and let them prove themselves otherwise. Mm. Let's go back to the life support fitters role. Yep. You worked on the ageing caribous. I did, yeah. How difficult was that? It wasn't a huge change for me uh, from working on the, the Hercules. We had um, similar uh, flying clothing for the pilots and then we had um, different life rafts. Uh, diff- you know, some of the systems were a little bit different. But yeah, they're definitely an old aircraft, and you know, they had some serviceability issues towards the end of their tenure. But um, you know, and when you're sitting in a plane for for five and a half hours between Townsville and and Brisbane, and um, you know, <laughs> it, it doesn't have a lavatory, it can be quite a quite a job. Oh, you mean so in your support fitting, you don't involve a process to relieve oneself from well i hope you don't have to bleep this out but they had did have the what they call the pissophone which was like a funnel with a uh, attached to a hose where you could urinate and it went outside the aircraft while you were in the air if there's any more than that you had to use a wet garbage bag so let's move on from ablutions <laughs> to <laughs> let's what was the combat survival training school like i absolutely loved it uh, one of my favourite postings, I did four years there. 
Uh, I went there as the maintainer for the life support equipment, so the the uh, life jackets and the life rafts. <clears throat> and but I loved it so much, I became an instructor as well. And uh, we would take air crew from um, not just all three services of the uh, arms of the ADF, but also from overseas. We had Swiss and and Dutch and Germans, uh, English. Uh, the odd American come over as well to train with us mm-hmm. and we would train them in seacoast survival so life raft out in the ocean plus onto an island we would train them in arid survival which was done up on high range uh, out of Townsville and then jungle training was up in the blue water ranges absolutely loved it up there in heritage listed rainforest and then we'd also uh, teach them in escape and evasion which was out kind of in the same area there but mm. um, fantastic time there as a bit of PR for the RAAF you should get in touch with one of the commercial television stations and say look do one of your survival programs on what we do in the Air Force yeah and see how they really do survive yeah yeah most certainly uh, no but yeah one of my favorites so but the other I think I, I know you were found to be very rewarding was your military skills instruction yes uh, how, why was that so rewarding so one RTU I did four years there as well, uh, training airmen and airwomen, uh, initial entry. And they uh, to take someone from, I guess, a blank canvas, um, we'd have people show up in, um, you know, looking like they'd just come off point break with the, the long surfy hair. And, <laughs> and by day three, they had a haircut like mine, which is pretty short. So, um, but taking them from uh, a civilian and turning them into airmen and airwomen in... Um, and under three months, uh, it was outstanding. And, and uh, to see the pride in families once they finish their course, mm. uh, that was probably the most rewarding part of that too. So, How important is that word family to a member of the RAAF? Ah, it's huge. Um, you know, I'm lucky. My wife's um, also a serving member. She's a, a PCO and uh, we've um, both been in a similar amount of time. She's been in 12 months longer than I have. So... Um, you know, we know how to support each other with deployments and uh, exercises and being away, and we've we've managed to raise a, a couple of wonderful daughters as well. But um, for uh, the guys and girls that have family members that are not in, it's um, you know it can be a little more difficult, I guess, if the the partners don't understand exactly what the members going through. But um, yeah, to have a good strong family relationship and. Um, you know, Air Force for me is like a big family as well. So yeah, that's what I'm getting at. You're married. Yeah, that's a family. But the bigger family is the RAAF. So how valuable is that bigger family's relationship network to you as a family with a wife and kids? Oh, it's it's massive. So um, I know that if uh, I was sent away for for six, twelve months, that um, I've got the contacts and and the friends and uh, people that are. are as close as family that would mm. um, step straight into that void and, mm. and help out as well. So, mm. um, you've become a careers counsellor as well. Is that uh, to who are you counselling? Are you a counsel- was, that was part of Defence Force recruiting. So I was a careers counsellor, which is when we get them the people straight in off the street and we counsel them on what jobs they they can do, can't do, uh, what they're suitable for. Um, I was also a defence interviewer, which is the next step in the process where we um, basically say yes or no, whether the last line of um, defence, so to speak. 
Um, and then I was also the careers promotion team leader where I um, was probably the best job I had at recruiting. I got to, to go around to schools and RSLs and I went way be, out. Uh, yeah, let's backstep. Schools. What did you do in schools? Oh, we'd go and, and um, provide a, a talk to students and then basically take questions and, and it, it was super. Some of the yeah, some of the schools out west in some of the smaller communities, fantastic. But but even these, uh, you know, we we looked after schools from the central coast right up to just south of sort of um, or north of Coffs Harbour and out west to Walgett. So was that to provide those students at those schools an image of what it would be like if you wanted to consider the RAAF as a career? Definitely. It was, it was an information session for them and, uh, and also for some of those smaller towns where they just might not think about it because they don't have a defence base nearby. Mm. And what kinds of questions did you get from the student body? Oh, gosh. Have I killed anyone? Was, uh, Have was, you? No, sorry. Which on. was a, a common question, but which we always answered with, not today, we haven't. So. Yeah, yeah. But um, uh, uh, the surprising thing was out west how many kids were interested in Navy, and I don't know if it's because they just didn't see much of the beach and they thought that would be interesting to, to get to the ocean, but uh, golly, no, that, lots and lots of questions. Yeah, no, I, that's, I that's, sort it's of can't good. recall any it, at the moment. I don't see that happening in the community, especially in metropolitan Australia, very much that the Defence Forces actually are on a regular basis going to secondary schools yep. to give them information about the Defence, particularly the Air Force, yep. because this is our centenary. You bet. Um, uh, anyway, well, again, let's go back to life support. Sure. The F-35, vastly different from the C-30. Ah, C-130, I should say. Most definitely. So what was your biggest challenge with fitting that out? Uh, Look, the biggest challenge for us is that this program doesn't run like the Defence Force runs its its aviation side of currently. So, you know, we're we're part of an American program and we're doing things the American way and um, everything from um, acquiring spares through to um, getting information, we have to get all that information from America. So um, it's, a, it's a process of putting in a request just to get information and have that information come back. The whole computer maintenance, the maintenance, how it's recorded on, on computers and that is completely different. It's a, a totally different system, so that can be a challenge. And I, I thought for someone of my age coming into something this new that it, it'd be difficult, but um, I've always been of that um, uh adage that if you look after your people they'll look after your business Mm. which is a a quote from Sir Richard Branson and I was very lucky that I stepped in with some very good corporals and uh, troops Mm. so they they helped me a lot and um, I'm quite comfortable in the program now. Do you think that there'll ever be a time when we do all of those things here in Australia and don't have to rely on coming from the United States? I know the F-35 is an American bought. Yeah. So, so we already are doing some of that here now. We're, we're fitting air crew into their, they call it PFE now, it's not flying clothing, so it's pilot flight equipment. Hmm. That's, um, so we fit them into that here now rather than them having to go to America on a plane, get fitted up for their day one, fly back two weeks later on a plane, go fit it up for their, for their day two fit. So we do all that here in, in Australia now with Lockheed Martin and um, it's going as smooth as can be for, a, a, um, a, I guess, a, a new way of doing business. Given the basis of these podcasts, to what extent do you feel part 
of a 100-year item. Yeah, well, I was only thinking on my way over here, Gareth, that I joined when Air Force was 75, which was a bit of a milestone, and and I'm here for the, the 100th. And uh, look, I like to think that I've helped a little bit with um, capability, and um, I, I've never thought that I had to be just being a life support fitter to to provide that capability. I, I look at, at 1RTU and the Combat Survival Training School and Defence Recruiting, um, also as part of that capability. So, uh, look, I'm quite proud to be around mm. when, when the 100-year anniversary is happening and, yeah, it's, a, it's certainly a good thing for Australia. Let's go off book. Do you remember the mini tornado you were involved in? Oh, my goodness, yes. So, tell, t- tell me what happened. So, at 37 Squadron, we, um, um, I'd been there for – I was in my second year, I think it was, and uh, – we, our life support section was upstairs in the hangar and we looked out over the flight line, which was um, fantastic. We could see aircraft coming and going, so we knew an air crew were going to be returning with their gear. And I'd been down in the hangar and I walked back upstairs. Sorry, earlier in the day we were looking out towards the Blue Mountains and it was that hot, you could see the rain trying to fall but it wasn't making it to the ground, it was too hot. And, um, yeah, I went down in the hangar to do something and I walked back upstairs and everyone was looking out the window. And I went over and you could see the, the storm coming up the, the, the runway, basically. And there was a, a little guy, he weighed probably no more than 60 kilos, ringing wet, one of the techos, and he was full tilt running for the, for the building. And the wind hit him and it actually blew his rank slide off his shoulder. Now, they're buttoned down. Um, and he made it in but we were watching this unfold and as we were watching it we saw uh, one of the J model Hercs start to tilt and it actually tipped over onto its wingtip and then we watched another one tip over and another one and there was some techos working under the wing of one of the aircraft and it tipped over and the stand that they'd just gotten off pierced the uh, under the wing of the aircraft and fuel spilt out and they all ran into the back of the aircraft and um, and I still remember when the wind stopped because it, it didn't last long it was like the aircraft was giving birth because all these techos were running out the back and and heading for the building so um, it was and there was carnage on base mm. uh, one of the 707s got moved as well and they're a big aircraft so well wow. after that they um, they made it a, uh, a rule that they had to put a certain amount of fuel into each aircraft when they landed because even aircraft that were chained down were tipping over but the ones that had a certain amount of fuel were held steady were, were held steady it's a privilege to talk to you just almost as a last and i suppose trivial question you've mentioned you're a careers advisor in recruiting you've been involved i'm a year 12 student i've just got my hsc if i'm in new south wales result and i've got an atar of 99 yep and i come to you and i say sir I can't make up my mind what I should do. What's your advice? Uh, look, my advice to, to that person is think seriously about going to ADFA, uh, Australian Defence Force Academy, where we'll uh, give you a free degree. We'll pay you over $40,000 a year and we'll guarantee you a job when you finish. Find something that you think you'll enjoy doing and um, I can almost guarantee you'll end up ahead of other uni students that go outside defence because like I say we will we will guarantee you a job when you finish university instead of having to go out into that 
the, the meat market and, and try and sell yourself. Paul, you're a great ambassador for the Royal Australian Air Force. Thank you very much for your time and it's great to have you as part of a 100-year history. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Gareth, for having me. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.